Thank you so much. Good morning. You know, over the course of these summer days, we've been having the opportunity to examine very carefully the various questions, critical questions that Jesus Christ posed, sometimes to his followers for the sake of expanding their faith, other times to his opponents in order to challenge their false faith. And here we find now this morning's teaching deals with a question-counter-question approach that Jesus Christ is going to utilize to be able to expose the false thinking of those who were opposed to him and to draw out the need to put faith and trust in Christ alone. So with your Bibles now, I'd like you to join me in turning to the 20th chapter of the Physician Luke's writings. And here you will find in just eight verses some of the most profound give and take that you and I can spot in the course of history. Jesus Christ has made his way into Jerusalem. He's embraced what has already been declared out on the streets upon his movement toward Jerusalem as people have shouted hallelujah and hosanna to him. And they have declared him to be king. He has cleansed the temple, and he has demonstrated his authority there. Even has gone so far as to curse a fig tree to signify the lack of life within the Israelite community. But now push comes to shove. In the midst of Passover week, where Jesus Christ has positioned himself as the ultimate Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, you find now that the authorities, and I use that word uh, intently, the authorities now come to question Jesus. And we pick it up in the first verse of this 20th chapter, where we find that one day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things. Or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? And they discussed it with one another, saying, Well, if we say from heaven, he'll say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. And so they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, as you've been drinking up these verses, then hopefully you've already spotted the critical theme. It's the theme of authority that we're going to begin to extract from these verses as we first look to our Lord now in prayer. Wonderful people that gather together like this in these three morning services. And looking forward as well to the gathering this afternoon. 
What we want to do, Father, is to allow for our, our minds to absorb your word. We want to be able to translate it into practical, everyday living. We want your word to work in the mind and in the heart of the person who comes here skeptical and yet has what we might call spiritually oriented questions that need to be addressed. And we want to be able to respond intelligently, scripturally, and practically, lovingly. Not based on our opinion, but really based upon your word and your word alone. We humble ourselves before your word. For those that know Jesus Christ as the Lord and as their Savior, Father, you are, through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, central to our lives. But we know that our souls need to be expansive. We need to be stretched in terms of both breadth and depth in our understanding of and in our relationship to you. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. Father, we've come here again to see Jesus and him only. We pray these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Nancy Piercy was a close colleague to Chuck Coaston highly effective in her teachings in the classrooms. She describes a scene, a debate, that began to unfold in her class over the whole matter of ethics. She writes, During a discussion on the nature of moral responsibility, one student asked, But who are we responsible to? After all, the notion of responsibility makes no sense unless we are responsible to someone. We're responsible to other people, another student volunteered. For example, if you run over a child, you are responsible to the child's parents. But who says, persisted the first student, who will hold me accountable to those parents? It's society that we're responsible to, ventured a third student. Society sets up the laws that we follow and holds us accountable. But who gives society that right, asked the first student. PSC writes, The answer lurking in many of the students' minds was that our ultimate responsibility is to God. Any other authority, and I've marked that, any other authority can be challenged. Only if there is an absolute being, a being of perfect goodness and justice, is there an ultimate tribunal before which we are all accountable. But in a secular university classroom, no one dared to say that God his final authority. 
Now, the issue that stands before us in these eight verses is the issue of authority. Who has final say? And what will be fascinating to you and me is that it will be the religious authorities who will converge around Jesus, attempting to challenge him regarding what it is that he's teaching in the temple in the midst of that Passover week. What I want to do now with you in these moments together is to draw out various aspects of Christ's authority as it relates to these verses and to see how, practically speaking, this connects to your life and to my life as well. Let's dig in. First, I want you to notice with me that in light of his ultimate authority, notice the gospel that Christ presents here. And you're going to see it as it begins to unfold in verse 1. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, and or who it is that gave you this authority. Now, what I want you to do is to draw a line back to the prior chapter, where in the 47th verse, we are informed that he was teaching daily in the temple. He's teaching daily matters pertaining to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love the passage that's found in Galatians chapter 3. When verse 8, we're informed that the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. And so now in the midst of this Passover week, while lambs are being slain in the temple, here is Jesus now on a daily basis explaining, teaching, communicating the gospel. And according to the prior chapter in verse 48, all the people were hanging on his words. What is this gospel? It is the entire scope of God's redemption plan. Past, present, future, centered in the finished work of the cross of Jesus Christ, where we are saved not on the basis of our works, saved on the basis of Christ's finished work. And Jesus Christ is doing what Daryl Bach in his brilliant commentary describes in terms of a translation of that word, he is gospeling, quote-unquote. In the midst of Passover week, where lambs are being slain, illustrating the need for a substitute dying on behalf of our sins. It was October of 1972, and a crowd of 150,000 Europeans had gathered between the barracks and crematories, the Auschwitz extermination camp, to honor a man who had gave his life to save a fellow prisoner. 
Now the martyr was Pastor Maximilian Kolbe, who had stepped forward to take the place of Sergeant Gajonovich in July of 1941. Gajonovich had been selected at random by Nazi guards to die. When the victim pleaded for his life so that he might see his wife and children one more time, the priests, the pastor in this case, stood forward, stepped forward, offered to take the doomed man's place. Colby told the gods that he was alone in this world and would be willing to die instead of the sergeant. A few weeks later, Pastor Colby died from starvation and a dose of carbolic acid. Gajonovich survived the rigors of Auschwitz and was reunited with his loved ones at the end of the war And in 1972 ceremonies, he spoke with moving simplicity. And he said he wanted to express his thanks for the gift of life he received and wanted to honor Pastor Colby for taking his place and dying on his behalf. Jesus is teaching daily in the temple. As lambs are being slain, and there is a a voice of the past from John the Baptist declaring, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the forerunner prepares the people for this moment, where this one in the midst of the lambs being slain is gospeling and explaining the whole value of being a substitute, the perfect substitute for sins. What a critical opportunity it is then for him to do this. Now, God gives each of us, if you love Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your Savior, opportunities to do what is described here, the gospel, so to speak where you are looking for ways then to be able to communicate that Jesus Christ has been the substitute for our sins. Are you looking for those opportunities? Are you finding ways of even cultivating questions that would lead people to the point of wrestling with, and why did Jesus Christ come and die anyways? Jesus now is answering that question that's being posed. Now, I want you to notice with me that there's a second aspect to his authority that unfolds here. The number two, in light of his ultimate authority, note with me the skepticism that Christ faces. Because at the end of verse 1, you and I are informed as a result of this gospeling, Three groups appear, and they seem to surround him. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Jesus has such authority over time that he was even able to say in Luke 9, verse 22, long before this, to his disciples, 
that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, here are his disciples processing information that Jesus delivered authoritatively where he had the capacity with his authority to be able to express these thoughts in such a succinct and detailed manner that he could even identify the three camps in advance. Here come, here come the opponents. Now, when you and I find that there is opposition to Christ, when there is skepticism toward Christ. Again, another question to unload in our thought processes. What is the intention behind the question? What are the assumptions that that person has pertaining to Christ? Back to the first. If you want to spot, in this case, the intentions behind the questions you need look no further than the prior chapter in the 47th verse where he was teaching daily in the temple and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. There's the intention behind now this question. Likewise, what you and I have to do whenever people are questioning Jesus Christ's Lordship is to try to understand their assumptions and their intentions behind the supposed questions, and now they deliver the questions. And they do so not privately. They do so publicly. Connect the intention with the question Notice what unfolds in verse 2. They said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things. That phrase carries with the idea of what is the nature of your authority. They couple that then with another element. Or who it is that gave you this authority. The source. Now we're dealing with both the what of his authority and the source of his authority. But what I want you to realize here is that these were the religious authorities. These are not secularists. These are not atheists. What these are are religionists. And furthermore, they are the authority figures in that culture. What you and I see unfolding here is what I will call a conflict of authority, and they feel threatened. The crowds have embraced this one as king of the Jews, as the Hosanna is echoed throughout the streets as Jesus entered into Jerusalem. The people are hanging on to his words as the lambs are being slain within the temple precincts. So now they want to put him on the spot. 
there is intentionality behind this questioning. By what authority do you do these things pertains to the nature of his authority. Who is it that gave you this authority pertains to the source of this authority. Now what you and I need to do in our common everyday conversation is to try to get behind the scenes and outside of the radar and ask yourself and myself, and what are the intentions and what are the assumptions that this person brings pertaining to this whole matter of either indifference to Christ or opposition to Christ? I don't know about you, but I've been struck with the ongoing dilemmas in the Middle East over these days. ISIS, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, and Christians being threatened with regard to their testimonies. And my mind went back over these days to an event that took place in the Taj Mahal years ago, where Dr. Henrietta Mears was on a tour of this setting that's known for its unusual acoustical quality. And standing in the center of the white marble mausoleum, the guide then said loudly, quote, There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is the prophet. Unquote. And his voice, we're told, reverberated through all the chambers and corridors of the tomb. Dr. Mears, with her indomitable spirit, asked, May I say something too? Question. The guide courteously replied, Certainly. And in a clear, distinct voice, and that's important for Christians, Dr. Mears said, Jesus Christ, Christ, Son of God, is Lord over all. And her voice, we are told, reverberated from wall to wall through the corridors of this shrine again and again, Lord over all, over all, over all. What is happening in our civilization globally And what is happening in our lives personally is this tremendous challenge of lordship, and it is a clash of authority. It goes back to the question that Arthur Leff posed at Yale Law School, the says who question. Says who? Who has final say regarding the big issues and controversies of life? Now, Jesus publicly is being put on the spot. And sometimes if you're going to share your faith, share Jesus, and do so publicly, you have to be prepared to be like your Lord, put on the spot, 
and be willing then to not only stand up and to stand out, but at times stand alone. I don't hear his disciples weighing in at this moment, do you? So as the lambs are being slaughtered, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is delivering truth, gospel truth, and an audience of religious authorities is encircling him, and the skepticism is obvious. They're being drawn to the one who speaks authoritatively. Now, when you and I are communicating the authoritative truth of Jesus Christ, at that point, be prepared to stand alone. But be prepared to pose questions. Because thirdly, in light of his ultimate authority, what I want you to do now is to note with me the question that Christ in verse 3, you and I are told, he answered them, I also will ask you a question. This is so Jesus. He answers a question with a question. This is typical rabbinic counter-questioning. Now tell me, he says, Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Now, people, this is out of left field. I mean, this is out-of-the-box thinking and questioning. And our first reaction to that is, where on earth did that come from? Until we see the subtleties and the intention behind the question that Jesus poses. Because John has served as the forerunner to Jesus. And John is the one who had declared, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And now here is Jesus posing this question in the temple as the lambs are being slaughtered. And he then gives them simply an either-or question to respond to. In other words, authoritatively, he only gave them two options. It will be fascinating as to how they respond. Now, break down his question with me. Will you do that? He poses this question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven? Pause. If the baptism was truly from heaven... That means, then, that the ministry of John had the stamp of authority from heaven, which means, then, that they should have trusted the one in whom John said, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But, authoritatively, he's only given them two options now. If the baptism was from man, then they're going to have to wrestle with the fact that the public opinion was that John the Baptist's authority came from God, and they're not with popular opinion. 
and now they have to wrestle with the crowds in their opinions of John the Baptist. He has shifted them away from himself to John, but in the process shifting them up to a higher authority that had set both John the Baptist and Jesus in the same time period, one as the forerunner of the other. He has lifted this to the question of authority. And it is a brilliant use of -of out-of-the-box, out-of-left-field questioning. Questions. So i got questions. Such as, why isn't phonetics spelled the way it sounds? And how does the guy this winter who drives the snowplow get to work in the mornings anyways? And why do they put braille dots on the keypad of the drive-up ATM? And those of you that live in apartments, why do they call them apartments anyways when they're all stuck together? And if one synchronized swimmer drowns, do the rest have to drown too? And by the way, what is another word for thesaurus anyways? And why is the word abbreviate so long? And why do people park on a driveway and drive on a parkway? Dr. Howard Kelly, it was his habit to wear a button with a question mark on his lapel. And prior to surgeries, he would sit down with his patients and engage them in dialogue. And then he would end by asking, do you have any further questions? Inevitably, somebody would ask, but what is that question mark for? And he would say, it deals with the ultimate question. And they would ask, And what is that? And he would respond, And what do you think of Christ? Have you built into your life a biblically oriented approach to be able to address the authoritative questions as well as offering the authoritative answer. Now, here's what fascinates me. There could have been pushback. And his opponents could have said, we asked first. What you and I find, however, with their response, is that they are tacitly and yet unbeknownst to them, acknowledging Christ's authority, because they wrestle with his question. Even though he responded with a question to their questions. Because I want you to notice fourthly now that in light of his ultimate authority, the dilemma that Christ produces. So in verse 5, what do they do? They begin to discuss with one another, saying, well, if... If we say from heaven, he will say, 
why did you not believe him? In other words, pertaining to who Jesus is. But if, and this is what either or questions do, if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. Now, when they say, if we say, if we say from heaven, and he'll say, why did you not believe him? That is the tension of faith. On the other hand, if we say from the people, all the people will stone us, that is the tension of fear. And now what Jesus has done is what people continue to do day in, day out, week by week, year by year, throughout all of history, find themselves in the horns of the dilemma, the tension of faith versus fear. Fear versus faith. What do I believe And of what and of whom am I afraid? Jesus now has done this. He has drawn out the emotional elements as well as the intellectual. And now these people are going to have to respond to him publicly, just as they have attempted to position Jesus publicly, trying to thwart his claims to authority. And now through his authoritative questions, they're on the spot. They are, as Greta Van Susteren would put it, on the record, you see. And how do you respond to a Jesus like that anyways? Shades of the IRS hearings. Look at verse 7. So they answered they did not know where it came from. Take the fifth and opt out. These were the religious leaders who should be operating on the basis of high levels of character. At the highest level, you have Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He deserves of his people quality questions to be posed so that highest authority can be truly represented and revealed. So now, Jesus has posed this dilemma. He has a way of doing that to people who want to sit on the fence. They opt out. And as they opt out, Jesus now steps in. Because here is your fifth aspect, that in light of his ultimate authority, note with me the response that Christ gives. Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But I want you to notice the subtleties here. Right after in verse 7, Luke the physician informed us, so they answered that they did not know where it came from. Notice that Jesus does not say, neither do I know. No. Instead, he calls their card. He knows what they know. And he knows their intent. With that one word, neither, he in essence is saying, I know what you know. 
and you think I don't know what you know. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Fifthly, in light of his ultimate authority, note the response Christ gives. He's not going to let them get away with opting out. And he does not give us that option to opt out either. But who do you say I am? Question mark. Posed to Peter after the general opinions of society had been reviewed. Neither will I tell you at this point what authority I do these things. And here these individuals who were unwilling to judge whether or not John had authority from heaven in just a short time further, will position themselves to be judged as to whether or not Jesus Christ has authority from heaven, but Jesus Christ has authority both over that cross as well as that grave that they had taken authority to sentence him to, you see. Who has ultimate authority anyways? Ravi Zacharias writes, I... Once saw a poster on the wall in the office of a school principal. It simply said, If you cannot understand me in my speech, how can you understand me in my silence? And now Jesus responds with silence. And they have to deal with what he has already said, what he has already Are you dealing with his authority? And so Nancy Piercy, she allows the debate to work itself out in the classroom until it's exhausted. The answer lurking in many of the students' minds was that our ultimate authority, our ultimate responsibility is to God. Any other authority can be challenged. But no one did say that. But Henrietta Mears did. Jesus Christ, Son of God, is Lord over all. Over all. Over all. Let's stand together. Our Father, one of the astounding things in a culture and a civilization where we see the clashes of religions and faith movements is the issue, the ultimate issue of authority, of who has ultimate say. And then Jesus said, on the third day, be raised from the dead. And was so. And to this day, still has ultimate say. And will always have ultimate say. So now, Father, we leave this service to head to adult Bible fellowships and elsewhere, asking a critically important question.
Does he have final say over my decisions? Final say over my life? If not, what do I need to do? To submit to the one who has say over the grave. So I pray, Father, we leave here with Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, central to who we are and what we're about. For this, we'll give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.